proper Anglican church architecture and church furniture, the reading of the Bible is done from the lectern, normally designed with the wings of an eagle and the face of an eagle staring at you with its long sight. And then the preaching is done from the pulpit. And this was intentional to distinguish between the reading of the Word which is infallible, and while we trust the preaching is based on that Word, nevertheless it's a man's interpretation and understanding of what that Word means, and so the two are distinguished from, the one is distinguished from the other. Well, winter does it in a different way. We stand for the reading of God's Word. You don't, I don't expect you to stand when I'm preaching. So that's our way of distinguishing. So let's stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read three passages. They're connected. They're not exceptionally long. Maybe they're longer than you expect when you're standing, but I hope you'll see the connection. One is from Philippians 2, 1 to 11. Well, I'm starting at verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind Christ Jesus had, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human being. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross." Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then from 1 Corinthians 5, or 15 rather, that great chapter on resurrection. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead comes through a human being. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But in this order, Christ, the firstfruits, then when He comes, those who belong to Him, then the end will come when He hands over the kingdom to God the Father after He has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is, is death. And then 1 John 3, 1 to 3, and I, I hope you're getting the link here. If I had a theme for this morning, and I did mention this to Glenn as she was preparing the appropriate praise for this morning, it would be hope and holiness. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, 
we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in them purify themselves. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Amen. Thank you. Only a silly person would start reading a book in the middle. And yet, sometimes we switch on the television and we find ourselves inadvertently in the middle of a film not knowing anything about how the current scene came about. It can happen to us. I'm sure it's happened to you. But for millions of people, life is just like that. They're unaware of the big picture, unaware of the, the mega narrative. It started within the beginning, God. Now, we believe that God made everything ex out of nothing. Ex nihilo. Let's not try and be clever and pretend I know anything about Latin because I don't. But nevertheless, we're convinced that that is a fundamental truth. In the beginning, God. And then we believe, and we have biblical evidence to support this, that we're moving inexorably towards a dramatic climax that has been determined by Almighty God. We read it there, when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When he will hand over his redeemed kingdom to his Father. And, and we're called because we know this big picture, because God has opened our eyes to it through his word, and arrogant though to many that seems, that's what we believe, and we are called to, to share that truth, that big picture, that whole course of history. The essential victory has been won. Jesus has lived and died and risen and ascended, the die is cast, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, our infinite, almighty, unchangeable Jehovah has given his word, and we share the now with, what, over seven billion fellow human beings. And we're called to share the, the not yet with them also. We share this present phase of human history. But we're called to explain it to those who really don't know how we got here and certainly don't have our hope of what's yet to come. There's no plan B. Only Jesus, no other way. Apart from him, only total emptiness and misery and hopelessness. No future without him. And yet in him, what hope and 
wonder and glorious future we have. Morris Sinclair of the Alexandria School of Theology in Egypt, a former, arch, a former bishop of northern Argentina, he has written a book entitled Pathways to Wisdom. And in this, this book, he sets the scene firmly in Scripture. It's a, it's a book on philosophy where the wisdom of God meets the wisdom of men or mankind. But in that book, his starting point is that statement which God in the garden made to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And, and every generation has really witnessed the result of the two streams that have emerged from this statement, from this prophecy from God himself to Satan. The rebellious stream and the redemptive stream. And we were all born into the rebellious stream when we turned in repentance and faith to Jesus. He restrained the, the strong man, the enemy, and took us from his grasp and moved us from the rebellious stream into the redemptive stream. And consequently, we find ourselves in occupied territory as a result of this. Don't be surprised that the tide of public opinion is hostile to many of the truths that we hold dear. It shouldn't surprise us. This fallen world, the, the, the nature of things can be to a very large extent explained by this division that took place at Eden, this separation. A few weeks ago, our pastor ended a previous series in, in this church here, preaching from the last chapter of the book of Acts, where the apostle Paul was found in our thoughts then, preaching under house arrest to the assembled Jewish leaders in Rome. And Paul went very public with his faith. Of course he did. He, he, he didn't tread gently. And we can learn from him. He quoted on that occasion, and in fact, I was sitting over there at the time, and it's when they read the passages of Scripture, and Betty had just pointed out to me to surprise that I was preaching in a few weeks' time here, uh, there have been a few events in my life that have put that out of my mind. And, but at that sermon, I knew what I was going to preach on. And that was so reassuring. It seemed to me that as, as David read those passages of Scripture and as he preached on them, I knew where I, I was going. Paul went, as I say, very public. He didn't tread lightly. He quoted from the prophet Isaiah, who found the hearers in his day hostile. The rebellious stream was very evident to the early Christians and to many, many of our fellow Christians in this world today. How we should pray for them. The anti-God attitude of the rebellious stream remains the same 
Hearing but never understanding. Seeing but never perceiving. People whose hearts have become calloused. Paul quoted these words. David quoted them that evening as he read the Word of God. That's the nature of our mission field. Hearing but never understanding, seeing but never perceiving, people whose hearts have become calloused. It's the very DNA of the rebellious stream of which we were part. Don't forget that. Only by the grace of God have we been moved from that rebellious stream. But that's our mission field. And its DNA is to resist the message and the cross of Jesus and the witness of those who know and love him. We're not to be discouraged, but normal socio-political strategies for engineering a profound change in mankind will cut no ice. Of course, it's right to try, and it's great when political leaders and others in our society endeavor to do what's right. But God, the Father, and his risen Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, sent God the Holy Spirit to work through the likes of us to challenge the rebellious stream in his strength and to rescue men and women, boys and girls, it's an amazing calling. But that's, that's what this is all about. That's what we're here for. This is why Windsor Baptist Church have purchased new premises up the Lisburn Road. It's not simply to expand the club. It's because of this calling. That's why we meet to pray. That's why we, we sharpen and encourage one another in house groups. That's the rationale behind Sunday worship. To draw us closer to the source of power, to get closer to our God, to get to know him better, to think his thoughts, to understand his ways, to make us more effective in going out there and challenging the rebellious stream with the good news and the hope of the gospel. And we dare not let them down. But it's what church is all about. Engaging with those who share this phase in the great unfolding drama of redemption with us, sharing with them the gospel of redeeming grace. Have we got the vision? Do we realize that's what we're about? That's what this purchase is about? That's what all that's organized within the life of the church is about, to make us more effective to incarnate Jesus to those around us. God never calls us to any task for which he does not also equip us. We have all the tools. They're there. They're at, our, they're at our right hand. But we've got to put the armor on. We've got to encourage one another.
We've got to be there praying for God's help, for the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank God for just a short time of prayer this morning in this little room before I come out here. Thank God for those who are praying before they came to church this morning, for those who met on Wednesday, for those who meet in house groups and pray. You know, it is hypocrisy, and I speak to myself here, to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If I'm not endeavoring to do it myself, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will couldn't be clearer. It couldn't be clearer. The great commission of the church Individually and collectively, we have to bring this message of Christ to those around us. That's what it's about. And we're not to be discouraged because the battle is the Lord's. But he has chosen to communicate this message through us. In the amazing economy of God, acknowledged weakness is a definite strength. The Bible reminds us that God's strength is made perfect in weakness. Isn't that great? That's that's the way God has said it. Let's set about showing it to be true. We're not up to the task, but the battle is the Lord's. We're not expected to distort every conversation to get the gospel in. We've become boring. But we are expected to be good listeners. We must earn the right to be heard. We must communicate the claims of Christ in a contemporary and relevant manner, a convincing and awesome manner. Thomas Cranmer, some 500 years ago, said the gospel must be proclaimed and taught in a language understood by the people of the day. We've got to live it. We've got to live it. In this postmodern world, and I know you've heard this before, people are not as much interested in whether our message is true. They want to know, does it work? Is it real? Does it change lives? And we must recognize the need to incarnate in these lives of ours the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. A recognizable counterculture to the culture of this world, a beautiful counterculture, something that is delightful, something where, where people are going to be drawn, the people with whom we rub shoulders every day, neighbors, family, colleagues in work, school pals, people with whom we study, with whom we meet in the supermarket queue, in the waiting room, in the hospital, of the doctors. Do they say, see something beautiful in us, something that really is attractive. The Apostle Peter was no shrinking violet, as you know, impetuous, very upfront in his witnessing, especially after that first Christian Pentecost. But his inspired advice on witnessing 
is really very much in my mind this morning. Always be prepared to, to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope you have. Now, the challenge is simple. Am I seen, are we seen as people of hope? To those of you who are here, do you recall Dr. John Upton, the president of the Baptist World Alliance in this church? I'll never forget it. Consulted as he was, and did amazed as I hear the details, by the Secretary General of the United Nations, Ban Ki-moon. And when Moon met him in London, and in New York rather, looked him full in the face and asked him, Dr. Upton, I wrote down his words, do you believe your God will restore justice and righteousness to this world? And Upton looked him full in the face with all my heart, sir. I do. Do we reflect that sort of hope? Do people see that the God we trust is not only saving our souls, but he's going to restore righteousness and justice to the whole cosmos, and Jesus is going to present the finished work of the cross to his Father, the last enemy, death, dealt with? Do we convey to those who sees daily that hope, that strength of conviction. It's easy for me to say the best has yet to come or death is swallowed up in victory, but when the chips are down and the dark days come, does our hope shine through? Do people see that we have an anchor and it's holding fast? There's nothing to fear. That's when we'll find folk listening. That's when they'll want to know when they'll be asking. My mother, long time with Jesus, very simple believer, she preached to nobody. She never embarrassed anyone. But her simple, confident walk with Jesus was obvious to neighbors to friends, and to her children, it was clear. She was a woman of hope. And when neighbors and friends hit problems, I noticed there was a knock on our door. Margaret could have talked to you. They saw the hope that was in her. And I thank God I saw it too. People see that in us. People need Jesus and the hope that is only to be found in him. It's, it's beautiful. It has drawing power. It's a major segment of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Let's stir it up in each other. Let's stir it up in each other. Let's ensure that Windsor Baptist Church, and I'm talking about the people who belong and who worship here, let's ensure that it resonates with Christ's eternal hope that when people come in here,
They feel the sense of hope that is resonating from the worshiping people in Windsor Baptist. And when we go out there, we carry that with us into the society around us. Did you notice that in our readings, the Bible makes clear the connection between hope and holiness? All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. And, and Peter, you know, he, 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 he brings this, he really anchors this, he earths it. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world, Abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds. This isn't a gospel of, of, of works, but it is a gospel that works. They will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. It's a while ago now when Clifford Longley wrote in the Times that churches have tried every tactic to win the hearts and minds of the unchurched. Modern English, engaging in com com uh, contemporary issues, democratizing decision-making, tightening or brightening up worship, modernizing premises. Wonder, all good things. But, says Longley, for all of it, they have not reversed the disenchantment of the masses. And then, here's the advice he gives. And they, I feel challenged by this. At least it is arguable that they, that's us, might have concentrated on deepening the spiritual lives of their members. Then they at least could claim the virtue of other worldly transcendence and godliness. The unpalatable truth is that the rebellious stream is not terribly impressed with us. Now, and I, I want to be upbeat. I want this to be a, a, a service where we resonate hope, but the rebellious stream is not terribly impressed with us. We don't fulfill the claims of our own advertising campaign sometimes. And we've got to come to terms with that. Churches are falling foul of the Trades Description Act. God's treasury, heaven's warehouse, it's full, but we're not always delivering the goods. Coca-Cola and McDonald's are incredible commercial successes. Not, not because they have mounted, and although they have a vast international advertising campaign, but because they offer consistency, absolute consistency in their products. People like what they get and believe that whether they purchase in Bangor or Belfast or Dallas or Beirut or Bangkok, a Big Mac will be the same. Consistency. A Coca-Cola will taste the same wherever they get it. Are we delivering consistency? 
lives that match up to this wonderful word of ours? Jesus is failing no one. The same yesterday, today, forever. His promises are sound, they're firm. But he calls us to lives of consistency, to use the armory of heaven. Are we delivering in these lives of ours what we promise in our gospel? It's not so much our doctrine that's rejected so often, it's us, me. It's not only our services and our presentation of the truth that needs to be presented clearly, it's our lives, our lives. It's as if the church wrote Longley has forgotten how to guide its members along a lifelong spiritual journey of growth towards holiness. Do I need to read that in the Times? My God has been saying that in his word. I've heard it preached from pulpits, yes. Are we delivering? Are we delivering? One article in a daily newspaper, but totally consistent with Scripture. Are we engaged in a spiritual journey of growth towards holiness? What about the last week? The last month, the last year? Am I more like Jesus now than I was a year ago? Did I go forward? Are people attracted to Jesus are they, or are they indifferent? as a consequence of interfacing with me? You need to ask these questions. Did people see something of the beauty of Jesus in you and in me in the last week, those closest to us in our family? We're not just to trust him, you see. We're to become like him. Have we come to realize that our calling as the body of Christ is to be Jesus just where you are, in your situation, networking with your friends and colleagues and acquaintances. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works for God has prepared God, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Listen to Paul as he wrote to Titus, a, a passage of Scripture that's very rarely quoted. God has appeared, the grace of God has appeared, that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Eager 
to do what is good. Are we interpreting that in our interaction with the business world? Those who are in the teaching profession, in the factory, on the farm, in the medical profession, in the fields of psychology and sociology, in university, at home. What are the implications of this eagerness to do what is good? On the programs I watch, the songs and music that I listen to, the places I go, the, what are the implications for holy living and the way I spend my money, my time, the way I plan my holidays? Good lives among the pagans, living like Jesus. It affects everything. There's no secular spiritual divide. Every fragment of our lives is caught up in this. Do people see Jesus in my priorities, in my attitudes? Oh, I'll tell you, I'm humbled by what I'm saying. There's no sense of me standing on some moral high ground preaching down to the congregation. But this is what this hope generates in us a desire to be like the one in whom we find the hope. It certainly affects people's attitude towards the gospel. Commentators vary in their understanding of the last phrase of 1 Peter 2.12, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. God comes in various and different ways. He activates our conscience. He puts his finger on sin. He comes in wonderful, joyful moments, and he comes in moments of tragedy and sadness. And he nudges us closer to Calvary, closer to Jesus. He has a purpose in it all. Sometimes people push him away and listen to other, other voices. Look at him. Look at her. Is that Christianity? If it is, do you really want to go there? Oh, God forbid that. You know, if you're here this morning and the behavior of those of us who know Jesus has has hurt you or offended you or disappointed you, I apologize. You see, Jesus never watered down the demands of holiness. He never played it down. Don't come after me, he said, without counting the cost. Loving me will often mean making an enemy of this world. It'll mean swimming against the tide. Where the call of this age is, assert yourself, I'm saying, deny yourself. This isn't easy. This is not easy. Can you cope with it? Mind you, Jesus would add, I'm your defender. I don't so much send you, I bring you, I take you. I will be with you. 
You can leave yourself in my hands, but those are my conditions. It's a call to holiness. And this hope will only be evident if people see that it also makes you more like Jesus, and me too. Christianity has many mysteries. We have an awesome, breathtaking future. We have incredible resources to draw on. But Christian living is very practical. It's very practical. Day-to-day holy living. There was a verse that I read this week just, and it said at the very, it's, it's from Peter's letter, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. And I went back, what's Peter talking about here? Do you know he was talking just about a man being respectful and considerate towards his own wife. This, this, this is where the rubber hits the road. Holy living is very practical. And of course, God knows we're never going to get it absolutely right. Thank God for, for that wonderful little epistle of John. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. God knows we're going to mess up. But we're called to holiness. We're called to purity. Jealousy and covetousness and a preoccupation a preoccupation with, with material things and selfishness and rude talk and gossip and bouts of unjustifiable anger. These things, says Peter, you see, he names them specific things. They war against the soul, he says. They grieve the Holy Spirit. But they are characteristic of the rebellious society from which we've been brought. We're to be like Jesus. We are to recognize these things and run away from them. And the resources of heaven are at our disposal to help. And these these things are, are contrary to the whole ethos of heaven. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Remember? You pray that? Do we then cooperate with the Holy Spirit in the fulfillment of our own prayer? The battle is not even. Boy, in pastoral work I discovered that. The battle is not even. Some people are facing stronger temptation and greater concentration of opposition than others. And I know that's true in the congregation in Windsor here. Homes where children go home and they're encouraged in the faith and others where they're laughed at. How we need to understand one another as God understands us. But godly living, holiness, is real evangelism and Satan is afraid of it. And he wants to suck us away from it into compromise. If I want to see people coming to Christ and I want to see my my prayers answered, then God says, here's the call. Be like my son. Find your hope anchored in him, but then endeavor with the help of your Holy Spirit, because you can't do it in your own become increasingly like him. Live good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify your father on the day he visits us.
Do you recognize yourself there? Eager to do what is good? You know, remember what Jesus said, Father, I delight to do your will. You know, I thought of that when Glenn was giving out the bread and the wine. I remember once in Windsor in Ballinhinch getting a local blacksmith to make me a dozen crucifixion nails. Got a diagram from an old ancient history manuscript and he made me the nails and I passed them round one Sunday in Ballinhinch at communion. There wasn't a dry eye hardly in the church. Father, I delight to do your will and you hold a crucifixion nail against your hand or your wrist and you think of what Jesus went through. And that wasn't the worst part of it. His father had to turn away from him because he was made sin for me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? eager to do what is good, even to the point where he was able to say, your will, I'm eager to do it. I delight to do your will. If it pleases you, Father, it pleases me. Oh, I know we can't get there. We're not going to be like Jesus in that absolute sense, but that's our, that's our model. And we're the body of Christ and the Spirit of God is endeavoring to make us like Him. That means that our hope is also evidenced by holiness. And people will see something of His beauty in us. We need to rediscover this. Abstain from sinful desires that war against the soul. These haven't changed, you know, St. Peter's Day. They're, they're manifesting themselves in different ways, but it's just the same. It's still a battle. Practical godliness. Choices. Every morning I wake up, there's the draw of the rebellious stream, there's the draw of the redemption stream, there's the draw of the darkness of hell, there's the draw of the beauty of heaven. Choices choices. Are we willing to evidence our hope by Christ-likeness, holiness? You'll find no inconsistency with him. If, as I said earlier, you have been offended by my inconsistency, our inconsistency, I say sorry but I point you to Jesus. Often the devil has come to me before I've been due to preach and said, you're not fit to stand in that pulpit. I know the thoughts you've had this week. I know those moments of indifference to your wife, those moments of impatience. I know about them. You're going to stand up on a Sunday morning and I've got to say, you're right. The charges stick. But when Satan tempts me to despair and points at all the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. And I say, Satan, your argument with me holds ground, but not with the one in whom I am dependent. 
He has no sin. He has no sin. And that's where our strength is. But we can't leave it there. We've got to be moving on that inexorable path towards holiness, and that's the call. It's all about Jesus. All about Jesus. The hope of mankind is found in him and in him alone. God has chosen to make him known through you and through me. And every morning when I get up, I should realize that, Lord, show me how in this situation, whatever it is, how I'm to exalt Jesus and glorify you, my Father. Then life becomes a challenge. And every new experience becomes a vehicle through which we can glorify God. Treasure in earthen vessels. Oh, the Bible has it so right. I don't feel up to this, do you? Not at all. But God says, you're not up to it, have you? But I can work through you. Christ in us. That's where glory is to be seen. That's where hope is to be seen. I've said enough. But you know, the message doesn't end with the closing words of the sermon. We're going to declare the truth And we're going to sing of this hope in closing. And if the musicians would come, I'd be grateful. We're going to sing that song, You're the Lion of Judah, the Lamb who was slain. And I invite you this morning to sing it with attitude. In the face of the powers of darkness, sing it with attitude. Because the victory is ours. Jesus will reign. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that he is Lord. And he will hand over to his Father the fruits of what he did on Calvary. A life lived to perfection and then offered to God as a sacrifice for your sin and for mine. Not just for our salvation, but for the whole reversal of the fall. For that statement that John Upton was able to make to Ban Ki-moon, Our God will restore righteousness and justice to the whole cosmos. And you'll be there. Trusting you, you'll be there. On that coronation day, you'll be there. And we're going to sing about it now. And I invite you to sing it, as I say, with attitude, but then go out and let's live for Jesus. And let's see holiness as something that is beautiful. Because Jesus was sinless, people were drawn to him. Little children, women of the street and of the night, drawn to him. Holiness is not something that, put, it's beautiful. And the more we're like Jesus, the more people want to know, why is this? Why this change? 
Tell us about this hope you have. Well, let's sing about it, and then let's go out and witness to it. <laughs>